Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Jonathan McGarrian, a host on New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today we'll be talking to James Simpson about his new book, Permanent Revolution, The Reformation and the Illiberal Roots of Liberalism, published in 2019 by Harvard University Press. Welcome to the show, James. Thank you very much, Jonathan. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. All right. So uh, can you just tell us briefly a little bit about your past academic work and uh, maybe how you came to this project? Well, I'd like to do that because I'm especially privileged to be part of a show whose title is New Books in History, because uh, when you hear about my past academic uh, cursus, you'll see that I'm not a historian as such. So I'm all the more um, privileged to be interviewed by historians, history being the queen of the sciences, in my view. So I'm a literary critic. I started off as uh, a medievalist studying writing about late medieval English uh, literature, notably Piers Plowman, John Gower, Geoffrey Chaucer, and so on. Uh, And I did that for the first um, 20 or so years of my career. But since then, I've expanded both the discursive and the chronological range. Discursively, I've moved just as much into theology, politics, as uh, I've been concerned with literature. And chronologically, I have moved well beyond the end of the so-called Middle Ages, a term I don't particularly like, uh, which in England, English cultural history will end in, let's say, 1485 or 1500 or 1534, take your pick. Uh, I've moved further and further beyond that boundary. So now I would describe myself as a cultural historian working across the later Middle Ages and the period of early modernity, generally in, in Britain. Fantastic. And you uh, have a little anecdote in the in the preface of the book about, uh, I think you maybe uh, kind of knowingly refer to it as a lightning strike um, with some parallels to some of your subject matter. Uh, so could you describe a little bit about how you came to this particular project? <laughs> well, that's actually uh, a story with a long chronology and a very brief chronology. You refer to the momentary chronology. Uh, of someone saying something in a, in a seminar, an early modernist Milton seminar that struck me very forcibly. And I realized that will be the subject of the book. But before I reach that point, let me just backtrack a little, if I may, and I'll answer the longer, address the longer chronology of how I come, came to be working on early modern materials. Uh, I was commissioned 
in the late 1990s to write a literary history of English literature, medieval, late medieval English literature, starting from 1350. So I agreed to do that, but I asked if I might extend the boundary line to 1550, that is to go beyond the boundary of the Reformation, starting with the Act of Supremacy in 1534. So when I did that, I discovered uh, that the entire period that I'd spent my scholarly life devoted to was, in fact, the invention of early modernists writing post-Reformation. Uh, it was the invention of Reformation polemicists. Not only it was, their, was it their invention, but they invented it in order to demonize it. So you can see that this was a very energizing experience for me to write beyond the uh, boundary of the Reformation because I was pressured, prompted, driven, not only to step into the period of early modernity, but also to see the way in which medieval studies itself was a scholarly configuration that had a certain myopia, that it, it never stepped beyond uh, 1485, 1500, 1534. It never stepped beyond those boundary lines to see what produced it in the first place. So that experience, exhilarating, energizing experience of writing that literary cultural history has prompted me in all my subsequent books to move beyond the period of the so-called Middle Ages into early modernity. And so this book is moving further and further uh, in that current right up to 1688. So that's the longer chronology. The shorter chronology to which you kindly refer is I'm sitting in a Milton, uh, Northeastern Milton Society uh, seminar, to which I'd been kindly invited by my former beloved, belated colleague, Barbara Lewalski. And uh, I was determined not to say anything. Uh, but as, a, as I say in the preface to this book, uh, one comment left me speechless in any case, and that was the moment at which, uh, in reference to Adam giving uh, permission to Eve to work alone, uh, giving permission but on, con on certain conditions, someone said, well, it's a strange kind of freedom that requires a condition before it can be allowed. And I suddenly realised this was libertarianism. This was what unites the American left and the American right. Uh, it's a, uh, an, a notion of freedom which is without condition, which can only be called freedom if it is exercised with a kind of absoluteness uh, by the chooser. So uh, the understanding of the uh, rootedness of libertarianism in American culture, both uh, in the left and in the right, 
was uh, a great moment of illumination. I decided to uh, then and there to work out what the genealogy of that commitment to absolute liberty was. So uh, that was that was the larger, the longer, and the shorter uh, moment of genesis for this book. Yeah. Well, based on yeah, so based on your last two answers, you can really see how you would have arrived at this project because it sort of unites those two things, right? On the one hand, the uh, early modern construction of its own periodicity. And on the other hand, the, uh, the the triumphalist narrative of the growth of liberty coming out of early modernity and particularly Protestantism. And so you are reacting a lot in this book against Whig historiography, which you, you say has really shaped this kind of historiography, this historiography of liberty. And you also claim is still something that uh, is really with us despite historians sort of performative repudiation of being Whig. So could you tell the listeners a little bit about what histor- Whig historiography is and, and how it's really left its mark on this subject matter? Surely. British cultural historiography since the Reformation has been absolutely committed to the Reformation. British identity and the Reformation go hand in hand. One is not possible without the other. That was the default position with, of course, many uh, many counter voices, but that was the default position for uh, the 400 or so years between 15, uh, 1534 and, let's say, uh, 1932, when Herbert Butterfield published his uh, succinct but very powerful little book, The Whig Interpretation of History, in which Butterfield says that the Whig historian likes to think that the uh, that British commitment to liberty flows in an unbroken stream from the Reformation, whereas, uh, says Butterfield, the story is in fact much more complicated the story involves uh, Britain having to British cultural history, the experience of British history, having to push against precisely many of the key features, all the key features, I would say, of uh, Reformation culture in order to shape versions of British liberty. Uh, so that was that was in 1932 that. Butterfield kind of characterized the ironic shape, the tragic shape of uh, British cultural history. Uh, Tragic because early modernity is a period of tragedy and ironic because the uh, formulation of British liberty can only be made by, when you look at it dispassionately, can only be made by repudiating the key features of uh, Reformation culture. So uh, that's the the broad uh, shape of state of historiography that 
uh, I began with. And I noticed that despite what you rightly call the performative repudiations of Wiggery in just about every British historian you care to look at, despite those repudiations, the story of Whig history actually remains astonishingly intact. What we have instead of the explicitly religious confessional commitments to Protestant triumphalism are secularised versions of what I call, what other people have called Heilsgeschichte, what Hegel no doubt calls Heilsgeschichte, of salvation history. So even since, especially since, um, decidedly since Butterfield's 1932 intervention, British historians have been continuing to promote uh, Whig triumphalism. It's just that they've done it uh, in secularist form, whether it be Christopher Hill or Keith Thomas, for example. Uh, these great historians, and they're definitely great historians, are um, still working within uh, versions of Whig triumphalism where the Catholic Church represents all that is irrational uh, and um, obscurantist and Protestantism uh, represents all that is rational and pointing towards the key uh, cultural phenomena that produce British constitutionalism. So, you know, Whig, his, Whig triumphalism is still very, very much, in my view, alive and kicking. And this book, my book here, is designed to push pretty hard against it. Yeah, and I think it, it absolutely does that. And I, I think it does it in a way that's refreshing because there can be something frustrating and paradoxical about, you know, looking at this period, right, where on the one hand, you know, this is, uh, if you're going to do the history of liberalism, you kind of have to start it somewhere. And it's, it's clear that you have to put it somewhere in early modernity, depending on um, you know, where you want to come down on it. But it's obvious that somewhere in this sort of miasmic past, it comes from early modernity. But on the other hand, this is also one of the most violent, repressive, absolutist, doctrinally schismatic periods in Western history. And it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, that the the, the innovation of this book is that you kind of say, well, actually, you don't have to resolve that paradox because the paradox is, in fact, the answer. That is 100% my position. You don't <laughs> to resolve the paradox. And that resolution came to me itself in a flash one day. I said, it's, the answer is, is itself the paradox. The answer is the way in which history moves, uh, repudiating prior versions of itself. So just to... Uh, unravel, unpack exactly the paradox uh, to which you point. I agree 100% with early modernists who say that when we look to the origins of modernity, we look to, uh, to what happens in, the, in the, the 16th and 17th centuries. Well, not quite 100%, but still very significant. We look to 
the beginnings of our modernity. When we want to understand who we are, we look to the 16th and 17th centuries in significant part. So up to that point, I agree with them. Where I start to disagree is in their triumphalist account of early modernity, whether that triumphalist account be of a kind of liberal Protestantism, an especially wrong account, diametrically wrong account of 16th and 17th century evangelical Protestantism, or whether their account be in terms of secular humanism, the so-called Renaissance version of early modernity. That's a very important, obviously, a very important cultural configuration, but in my view, it's a, it's a much more minor configuration than uh, the configuration of evangelical religion, since evangelical religion is not to do with small coteries, as Renaissance humanism was, small coteries of men, just about, um, as Renaissance humanism was, but evangelical religion was legislated for every, every single soul in Britain between the 16th and across the 16th and 17th centuries. So my account of early modernity is in stark contrast to the Whig accounts or to the secular uh, humanist accounts um, is the opposite of triumphalist. I see what what happens uh, in the 16th and 17th century as an intensely violent, uh, tragic period of European and British history. After the 20th century, which takes the cake, despite Stephen Pinker's rosy account of the way in which history is getting better and better, uh, the tw uh, after the terrible catastrophes, murderous catastrophes of the 20th century, then I think we have to look to the 16th and 17th century for uh, the maximally violent period of European history where upwards of 40% of the population of the empire dies between 1618 uh, and 1648, where 25% uh, of the population of, uh, of France will die in wars of religion between uh, well, starting from 1562, um, where 200,000 people will die in, in Britain in the 17th century. The list is the litany of, of murderous, uh, lethal statistics is very long. I won't, I won't uh, continue it. But that's just the start of giving an account of uh, our European, our British, uh, our American early modernity. Uh, as non-triumphalist, as a period of uh, tragic violence. Right, and, and there's a number of ways that this, this book really intervenes incisively, but just to piggyback off of that, one sort of concomitant to triumphalism is, I guess you could call it, right, like unidirectionality. And this is, this book is not that, right? It's sort of 
time and history doubling back on itself in, in almost like dialectical movement. So um, I'll try to characterize the thesis and you can tell me if I'm getting it right. But uh, essentially, it's that Protestantism is intrinsically a self-conflicted tradition because of its revolutionary nature. It continuously repudiates its own tradition. It's therefore in a state of permanent revolution, targeting earlier versions of itself more so than Catholicism. And through this complicated, agonistic movement, uh, eventually, after long periods of internal consumption and violence, political theory and society and religion has to find ways to make its own violence and its own self-consumption bearable. And that is where we should look for the roots of liberalism. Jonathan, you are a very good reader. There's no need for me to contribute to this interview anymore. You have completely understood my book. There's nothing more for me to say. Um, I'm being slightly facetious. No, you've 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 got you've got the the thesis of the book uh, with with complete accuracy. Whereas historiography, you know, has for had for four hundred years and still continues one way or another in slightly more covert forms, whereas historiography has pitched the key confrontation as being of early modernity as being between absolutist Catholicism and liberal Protestantism, I myself argue that, that while that conflict is, is massive, uh, indisputably, that there's much more interesting conflicts going on within Protestantism itself, and that Protestantism is necessarily self-conflicted precisely because it is always repudiating prior versions of tradition and therefore repudiating prior versions of itself. As soon as a tradition forms, which is not grounded on the naked text of scripture, as soon as a tradition forms, you'll have a, a schism within Protestantism. And it's that internal kinesis of uh, Protestantism, internal movement within the Protestant uh, tradition, I use the word tradition, uh, it's that internal kinesis within uh, the Protestant tradition that produces an ever more schismatic, self-divided culture, the result of which is uh, precisely uh, evangelical culture, which is still extremely powerful uh, in the United States as one key version of modernity, one key claimant to modernity, and its uh, heretical sibling, I would say, which is the liberal tradition. Liberalism, as one reviewer of my book said, is, in Simpson's view, a, uh, a Protestant heresy. Um, that's, that's a really brilliant perception, I think, one that I very willingly, readily accept. So um, the, the upshot of that internally conflicted tradition is uh, 
are the two main currents of American cultural, contemporary American cultural history, evangelical religion on the one hand and liberalism on the other. Yeah, and uh, stepping back for a minute, this is just a question I had while reading, is uh, it's sort of more of a theoretical level, right? So on the on the one hand, a lot of the dynamics of this story work in a sense from the internal or intrinsic logic of revolutionary movement. But on the other hand, I'm wondering how that will fit together with the periods in history in which there are contingencies or or very noisy external intrusions. And I'm thinking here primarily of in the 17th century um, laudism, right? Like the, 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 the sort of outward imposition of Arminianism or what contemporaries feel is a form of backdoor Catholicism. And, th- and that is definitely something that's a little bit more historically contingent. It has to do with the labile nature that can come along with personal monarchy. So, yeah, that's just a sort of theoretical question that I had. There are two aspects to that question, Jonathan. One is uh, about the nature of revolutionary movements generally, and the second is about counter-movements, inherent counter-movements within uh, those revolutionary periods. Can I just address the first one first before I come to Arminianism and Lordism. The, Absolutely. The, I'm glad you mentioned the more general point because what I'm doing is describing the Reformation as a revolutionary movement. Uh, because our historiography, historiography has been dominated by secularism and by belief in the eventual triumph of secularism. Because of that, we tend uh, to think that revolutions begin in the age of revolution from uh, 1649 to, I don't know, 1917. Um, we, We tend to think of revolutions as secular events. In this book, what I try and do is step back from a variety of revolutionary movements, moments in European history and see the key repeating cultural, political phenomena that uh, occur uh, within revolutionary moments. And once you do that, you you recognise, I recognise, that the the Reformation is itself a revolutionary movement. In fact, I go one step further and argue that the Reformation is not only a a revolutionary movement sharing all the features of later revolutionary uh, moments and movements, but in fact it's the template. If we want to understand revolutionary cultures in European history, whether it be the English, the French, uh, the Russian, we needn't restrict ourselves to European history, the Chinese Revolution also conforms uh, conforms to these uh, same set of revolutionary phenomena. If we want to understand these revolutions, then I think we have to stop repudiating religion uh, and we have to start looking as cultural historians 
much more uh, determinedly at the model of what early modernity is really all about, which is the new shapes that religion takes. So um, the beginning of my book is, the first chapter is uh, one in which I articulate the different features, characteristics of revolutionary moments and movements uh, and say that the Reformation in the 16th and 17th centuries is uh, absolutely square with those. Not only that, but it is the template for all that follows that the revolutionary moments we see later in European history can uh, in some profound way be described as uh, modelled on a religious template, the template of early modern European religion. So that's my address to the larger uh, question about the way in which the Reformation is itself characterizable as a revolutionary moment. But your question is, uh, is more specific. It's about the counter movements, what you call the contingent movements in what I'm describing as the necessary movement, kinesis within revolutionary movements. Uh, Here, I'm just going to disagree with just one of your words. I I totally agree that one has to look at the counter-movements within revolutionary movements, but I don't think they're contingent. I think they're absolutely inevitable. Uh, The fact that um, we have Arminianism uh, arriving in England uh, very soon after the Council of Dort in uh, in 1609, 16 to, to, to nine, 9 or 10, um, we, have, we have Arminianism, that's to say an account of free will somehow trying to escape from the prison house torture chamber of predestination. Uh, we have that uh, arriving in England very soon after this um, strong affirmation of strict Calvinism at the Synod of Dort in uh, in the Low Countries. We have it uh, arriving, uh, you know, in the early uh, 17th century. And throughout the 17th century, Arminianism is one way or another trying to break free from the uh, prison house, as I, as I call it, the torture chamber, as I call it, of predestination. It seems to me that this is not a contingent movement. It's full of paradox. It's absolutely fascinating because it's curious, isn't it, that the monarch that British cultural history regards as absolutist who deserved the revolution that took his life, Charles I, it's curious that the person protecting, defending the notion of free will um, in the very beginning of his reign, trying to dampen down all this talk about predestination, it's curious that the person uh, defending free will is the absolutist monarch, whereas it's the revolutionaries, paradoxically, who are the uh, opponents of free will, the fierce opponents of 
any notion of free will, merit, or works, because uh, such notions detract from the uh, absolute prerogative of the evangelical early modern God. So we have strange mixtures of uh, of um, denials of free will by the revolutionaries and uh, promotions of free will by the so-called political absolutists. So this movement uh, affirming free will is not accidental. It's not contingent. It grows from within that same kinesis of Protestantism. And its first expression is actually a conservative expression, which has an aesthetic to go with it. The the, um, theology and the um, sacramentalism of uh, Archbishop Lord. Interestingly, uh, Arminianism does a kind of jump somewhere in mid mid 17th century to the likes of Milton, who who detests uh, Archbishop Lord, who detests archbishops and all bishops, for that matter. But Milton himself uh, is becomes uh, unquestionably an Arminian. So um, liberalism coming out from under the heel of evangelical theology, notably predestination, liberalism uh, can only be understood as a kind of necessary uh, product, uh, reflex, resistance to the uh, terrible absolutist extremities of evangelical Calvinist, Lutheran, and especially Calvinist theology. So, yes, these more, in my view, civilized uh, movements do grow out from within that Reformation moment, but they grow out of it uh, in my view, necessarily, it's not. It's not contingent. It's no accident that they should do so. You're absolutely right to say that there are to and fro movements. The whole period can only be understood in dialectical terms. But the movement of the dialectic and the characteristics of each side within the dialectic are not, in my view, contingent. They, they're plausible, predictable features of a revolutionary period. And you've schematized that dialectic in a, in a way that makes it sort of accessible. Um, and I think if I recall it correctly, these phases you divide it into three uh, and you refer to them as respectively, revolutionary joy, revolutionary agony, and revolutionary escape. Can you flesh those out a little bit and provide some periodicity and and what characterizes those periods? Surely. The actual dates for my periods are necessarily vague. There's, There's no precise date for characterizing each of them. But their intellectual, emotional logic is uh, is pretty clear. So let me approach those three phases through their logic rather than 
through their dates. The logic uh, is, it follows three steps, uh, the intellectual and emotional logic. Um, one is carnivalesque joy. Two is dark, saturnine grief and not to, not to say despair. And three is escape, movements from out of the period of despair. How do they work? Any revolutionary moment begins with a kind of ecstasy of joyful destruction, taking a hammer to the monuments of the Ancien Régime is always pleasurable work. It's always, it's always characterized by joy, accompanied by expressions of uh, irreverent repudiation and destruction of the old order. And I'm going to take the example of iconoclasm uh, as, as uh, just one of the various features of revolutionary uh, movements and moments to uh, give an account of this emotional, intellectual logic. So period number one is um, joy. You walk around with a hammer, you smash the statues of the saints. Uh, we, we should remember that the iconoclastic activity in Britain, uh, legislated iconoclastic activity, whereby every religious image had to be destroyed. That's a very tall order. Uh, we should remember that it did produce uh, astonishingly vigorous and aggressive uh, periods of um, joyful, carnivalesque uh, destruction. Upwards of 95% of the religious images of imagery of uh, East Anglia, for example, uh, has been plausibly argued to have been destroyed. Anyway, that, that's period number one, phase number one, carnivalesque joy. But that period tends to be followed by extremely painful self-reflection and concern about the self. How does that work in terms of iconoclasm? The problem is that after you've destroyed all the images, you've got the gaps where the images were. You've got the spectral presences of those whitewashed walls or the uh, hollows where the statue of the saint or of God uh, had previously been. The statues are still there as spectral presences one way or another, just as the frescoes were. And even more worryingly for the committed evangelical iconoclast, you've got the images of the brain. The brain, the soul, is an inherently image-producing machine, and it produces images. We all know that. And so you've got to take the hammer to the psyche itself. You've got to clear out the inner psychic space of the soul from all images that would detract from the proper worship 
uh, only true worship that the uh, absent God, the Deus absconditus, the hidden God, the God who is without images, uh, deserves. And so you've got to break the images in your own psyche. Now, this is really not fun. Uh, It's hard and demanding work. Um, And also it's exhausting work because it's impossible and the job is never done. As long as the soul and the psyche and the imagination are working, you're going to have images. And each of them, if they're religious images, have to be destroyed. Even if they're secular images, they're still worrying. So this is a period of inner agony, which itself prompts stage number three, which is uh, escape. How does that work in terms of iconoclasm? In the middle of the 17th century, uh, British people started travelling to Italy. When they were in Italy, um, they saw this absolutely spellbinding religious art um, and they discovered that they could afford it. So they had a problem. The, the art was beautiful, it was affordable, they wanted to take it back to England with them, but it was Catholic religious art. It was the sort of thing that British legislation had demanded to be destroyed. So the solution they came up with was escape, and it was to invent the notion of aesthetics as discourse, uh, where you admire the form but you ignore the content. Uh, you invent new spaces for the presentation of uh, religious art, which will be art galleries. So the art gallery in Northern Europe, at any rate, um, really starts to get going seriously from the 1630s or so. And thirdly, you invent a new class or you specify a new class that will be uh, capable of admiring all this beautiful art. Uh, and that will be aristocrats or uh, people of means who will not fall victim as the credulous peasant will fall victim to the seductions of uh, the image, to the sin of idolatry provoked by the religious image. So the whole realm of aesthetics of art galleries of uh, uh, what we all now recognise as something that's absolutely central to us, if not uh, held with kind of religious reverence, the art gallery, and it is held with religious reverence because that's where it comes from, Uh, we all recognise that configuration of cultural forces that is the art world and the art gallery and where we admire works from Catholic Europe uh, without falling victim to them, to the, the sin of idolatry, uh, we can see that that is the escape mode, the escape phase. So three phases, joyful carnivalesque destruction, number one, followed by number two, which is terrible agony of trying to control, govern, break the images of the psyche itself, not fun at all, leading to 
phase number three, which is escape, a new liberal version of art, of the image, takes shape, takes form in European culture and in British culture from the middle of the 17th century, and that's the liberal form of uh, the art gallery and appreciation of aesthetics that we uh, currently use, still use, to, uh, to, to, to allow ourselves to look at these dangerous and seductive things, images. Is that, is that clear? Uh, th th there could be other examples. Uh, I've used I iconoclasm in the image as one example. There are other examples as well. No, that's actually perfectly clear. And, and the example of iconoclasm is great because it's really illustrative of a lot of the subversive work that this book does, particularly with respect to one of the most triumphalist narratives of Reformation history, which is that, you know, the, the idea that the Reformation created this sort of uh, modernizing, liberating sense of psychological interiority. And in your story, in fact, the interiority of Protestantism is a direct outgrowth of this more violent form of iconoclasm, if I've got that correct. That's exactly right. Um, you know, the, the, our uh, experience of the image, the uh, frames by which we manage these dangerous things, images, uh, and we take pleasure in them and we allow ourselves to behold them in art galleries, that whole world is produced out of repudiation of everything that uh, the evangelical said had to be done with images between the 16th and 17th centuries. There are, there are, a, few, there are a few more clear examples of that internal kinesis, that internal contradiction, the overall paradox to which you pointed earlier of the liberal tradition. Uh, there are other examples. I, I won't rehearse the substance of each of them now, but theology is one with, where predestination finally gives way to the Protestant work ethic, um, where trashing of the merit of works finally gives way to and produces, I argue, the uh, work ethic and uh, a commitment to meritocracy in liberal culture. That would be another example of this paradox working itself out. A third example would be the practices of reading, where uh, at first there's only one text that is worth reading that must uh, absolutely determine every institutional practice and form within the church, that is the text of scripture. And that finally produces out of its own impossible uh, disciplines over its punishing, destructive disciplines of literalism, uh, that finally produces uh, a liberal account of interpretative freedom. Um, but all we're, we're going through the same story each time. Uh, of those three phases, whether it be iconoclasm, 
whether it be uh, theology, whether it be reading. I didn't talk about hypocrisy, but that too, there are three chapters devoted to hypocrisy in the book. That too would be susceptible of the same uh, intellectual logic of these three phases. In each case, we see the third phase of this logic repudiating the first and second phases. In liberal culture, the third phase is still alive and kicking in uh, many evangelical cultures, by the way. It's not all in the past. And, uh, and, And don't worry, I definitely have more questions about the specific examples uh, in a second, but I, I just a couple more more general ones and actually ties directly into what you just said. In terms of this genealogy, one thing that I came away with the impression with that I could be wrong about, but that was really interesting to me was that in this schema, the final phase, the synthesis phase, if you will, seems to be the most abrupt of the three of them. Um, now, I don't know if that is is a misreading or anything, but if, if it's not, if, if the relative speed of the um, sort of resolution or the, the birth of a more liberal solution is relatively rapid in terms of the overall roughly 150-year period that the three cumulatively occupy, um, is there some sort of part of the dynamic that would, in your opinion, sort of lead to that? It's such an interesting question, Jonathan. I hadn't put it to myself like that. I had not thought about the relative velocities of these uh, three distinct phases, and it would be very interesting to uh, meditate on that question. Um, but even as you say that number three is abrupt, I guess I think of Milton. Um, Milton, who is hailed as the great champion of liberty, obviously, um, but also the great champion of uh, a, a certain interpretative liberty in reading the Bible. When I come to uh, talk about Milton as a Bible reader, I focus at first on Milton as literalist, uh, and Milton is a fierce biblical evangelical literalist for a good part of his career. It's only later on that he flips, and I think your account, your word abrupt, is actually very appropriate to Milton's flipping. Why did Milton flip? Because he had a terribly unhappy experience of uh, marriage. His first marriage, uh, his his wife walked out on him uh, very, very quickly. Uh, And Milton wanted a divorce. And he was up against a real problem. Uh, It's Jesus Christ who says in the Gospels, um, that which God hath joined, let no man put asunder. It seems pretty clear what Jesus thinks about divorce. But Milton, through his own experience of marriage, uh, but also through the experience of literalism, which is punishing given his experience of marriage, uh, 
Um, Milton flips and Milton writes the divorce tracts, which are effectively tracts about uh, biblical interpretation, interpretation of scripture, which argue that we should think about charity, uh, which argue that we should think about uh, intention, what did God intend, which argue that we should use rationality when we uh, interpret the Bible. The liberal reader, Milton, is uh, produced uh, in a very abrupt way. So that's another book. But thank you, Jonathan. (laughs) No worries. Um, One terminological question that I thought might be interesting for, uh, no pun intended, but lay readers of the subject uh, who might have a stereotyped view of Anglicanism, right? You often hear, at least in the States, a lot of people make the sort of flippant joke that Anglicanism is basically just an ashamed version of Catholicism. Um, but you unabashedly adopt the term Calvinism for it. And I was just wondering if you could speak to, um, yeah, like what, what the characterization of sort of British Anglicanism as Calvinist uh, does, because it definitely does a lot of heavy lifting in the book that I think is really important. Thank you for raising that point. It's it's either Catholicism in disguise, Anglicanism, high church Anglicanism, or a phrase one hears often enough in Britain, it's the Conservative Party on its knees. Um, Anglicanism in British historiography plays a very, very significant role in distinguishing the ferocities of European Calvinism in particular uh, that produces such devastating warfare, um, such violent periods, decades of uh, history in in both France and and in the empire across most of Europe for that matter. Um, Anglicanism plays a huge and important role, the, the notion of Anglicanism plays a huge and important role in English historiography as distinguishing uh, Britain from those violent continentals. Anglicans are not extremists. They follow a via media. They repudiate the extremities of evangelical religion just as they repudiate Catholicism. It's a middle path, a moderate path, They are inherently tolerant. Now, this, in my view, is really a terribly serious error, a mischaracterization, a mischaracterization which is designed to uh, allow um, all sorts of misconceptions about the 16th and 17th centuries in Britain to proceed. Of course, there are great figures of moderation within the Anglican tradition. I'm thinking particularly of Richard Hooker, his um, uh, great work of the 1590s uh, about the English church. Um, But for the most part, Anglicans are Calvinists. And I think it's really important to say that uh, crisply up front. 
if you look at the legislation of the Anglican Church, it's uh, one of the articles of the 39 articles is about predestination, for example. So um, another article is the fact that our works uh, count for nothing. Um, Anglicans are extremists, if you think of Calvinism as an extremist movement. I personally do. Um, the Anglicans, and Ethan, uh, sorry, a name is uh, escaping me, um, historian in Berkeley. Um, oh, gosh. Uh, anyway, Ethan, can you hear me, Jonathan? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, the name will come. Um, anyway, he, he's pointed this out in a, uh, a wonderful recent book. But that's my view of uh, Anglicanism, that it's, uh, it's a mistake to think of it as um, conservative, uh, backward-looking. I'm talking about 16th and 17th century Anglicanism, not contemporary Anglicanism. It's a mistake to think of it as um, moderate, tolerant, and uh, conservative. No, it's a revolutionary uh, movement with all the characteristics of revolutionary uh, re revolutionary movements. But it, it definitely seems to me like the Calvinist tenet of predestination looms really large in this story. And I would pair it, uh, again, this is free to agree or disagree. I'm interested to hear your thoughts, but I'd, I'd pair it with Another thing that I think is a sort of conceptual driver of this book, which is the concept of despair. And you really write it quite crisply. I'll quote you briefly, where you say the most dynamic and widely diffused forms of early Northern European modernity began with despair. So can you tell me a little bit about what the concept of despair and perhaps its marriage to or outflowing from predestination does in your story? Sure. Ethan Shagan was the name of the uh, Berkeley historian I was trying to think of a moment ago. Excellent book on Anglicanism in very much the terms that I was just describing. Um, yeah, I think despair is um, a key player in my book, as you rightly suggest. Um, and I focus on that not only because it's true in my view, but also because if anything can immediately undo the triumphalist account of early modernity that we get from uh, a variety of uh, historians, uh, it's the notion that um, the main uh, or a main uh, experience of early modernity was uh, Hamlet's despair. It's no accident. Shakespeare was not careless when he makes Hamlet uh, a student at Wittenberg. Um, it's Hamletian uh, melancholy, uh, which is characteristic of a great deal of early modernity. Now, why do I say that? Um, I say it because I'm a medievalist. Despair uh, in 14th, 15th, 
century English theology is not a big deal. Uh, despair appears in penitential tracts um, in the very, very margins of a given author's eye. Chaucer's parson, who delivers a uh, penitential treatise of the last of the Canterbury Tales, gives a few lines to despair and how he must avoid what he movingly calls one hope, uh, when our hope has become one. Despair doesn't feature anywhere else, really, in Chaucer's oeuvre of Canterbury Tales or, or in much of the rest of late medieval English literature. Perhaps Piers Plowman would be the one potential exception. But in any case, what I'm arguing broadly is that uh, despair is, has a relatively low profile in late medieval English literature and theology. What happens from the beginning of the 16th century? Despair rockets in profile. Everyone is suddenly full of despair, or they're certainly despairing in phase two, you know, from, let's say, 1560s or so forward. The literature, whether it be Fort Greville or Christopher Marlowe or some plays by Shakespeare, uh, works by Dunn, uh, these are full of uh, horrified anxiety. And I haven't even mentioned the greatest despairer of all, who is unquestionably John Bunyan, whose despair is so crushing, so chronic, uh, so utterly unsustainable, um, so hero heroically born. Um, Bunyan, in my view, is not... An outlier, Bunyan is expressing uh, what the what the legislation expresses that God chooses everyone. We can't know for what reason we're saved or damned. Uh, we have to believe in God. We can only believe. That's all that all that we have left to us. Faith alone, and uh, that that determinist account of human action will inevitably, in my view produce a despair. And that's the theology and that's the emotional response that that theology inevitably produces. And that's unsustainable. No culture can go on despairing of human action uh, or plain despairing. No, no culture can go on subject to the agonizing neutralizations. Think of Bunyan. He has in grace abounding he has, uh, you know, a few days of exultant uh, experience of God's grace, followed by months or years of crushing despair. So for me, the keynote, uh, the major key of 16th and 17th century emotional culture is front and center despair. And that's really new. It, it's not characteristic, I repeat, of late medieval English theological literary culture. Yeah, I, I working on the later Middle Ages myself, I agree with that completely. And it reminds me of one of my favorite little anecdotes of the early Reformation, which is when Martin Luther was still in religious orders, and he became, in his own telling, sort of 
racked with despair and feelings of sin and guilt and was confessing constantly. His confessor at some point, probably sick of him, uh, told him that the amount of despair and confessing he was um, experiencing and doing was itself a sin. <laughs> um, and yeah, yeah, it's, it just ties perfectly into that. It's really illustrative of that sort of Reformation ethos. Um, but in addition to despair, you have another pair of, I guess you could call them emotions, but maybe also affect, and you alluded to them briefly, but um, hypocrisy and sincerity. And I'm wondering how you came to identify these from the whole galaxy of ethos or conditions that you might find expressed in early modernity, and also how, once you arrived at those, the story of hypocrisy and insincerity track the story of permanent revolution and eventual entry into liberalism. Yeah. So two reasons of how I came to hypocrisy and sincerity. Sincerity would be one word, very commonly used word in the early modern period. Authenticity, which is our word, um, might serve as well. Uh, one was contemporary and the other was to do with uh, cultural history in the 16th and 17th century themselves. But the contemporary one is the um, uh, various political movements uh, which we're experiencing right now um, have it that given their supporters, of the supporters of, uh, let's say, ethno-nationalists who say uh, blunt and uh, striking, uh, unsayable things, um, their, their supporters are said to like, admire these leaders because they say it like it is. They're, they're authentic. They say the truth. They don't hide things. They're, they are truly themselves. So I began to think, you know, how is it that uh, ghastly positions are defended by uh, reference to authenticity? And I think a lot of historiography does actually begin with the present, if, if I can uh, express that um, historiographical heresy. Um, but that, that was one moment. What's the history of authenticity, I find myself asking. And then I looked to the 16th century and I found that uh, questions of hypocrisy are all over the place, questions of sincerity are all over the place. Uh, and I also noticed as I was looking at other revolutionary moments that that the charge of hypocrisy against enemies is always made, whether it be in the French or the Chinese revolution. Um, the revolutionaries must unmask the hypocrite, must tear the, um, the screen uh, that hides the hypocrite uh, from view. Now, why should that be the case with revolutionary movements? Because revolutionary movements have a top-down vertical demand for sincere, absolutely unqualified devotion to given principles. Now, you and I know, as everyone else does, that the human psyche is a particularly refractory creature. As soon as you order the psyche to do something, it will disobey. 
So the first movement of uh, the evangelical uh, anti-hypocrisy movement is that characteristic of that first carnivalesque movement. Evangelicals take particular pleasure in calling their opponents heretics. But stage phase number two is once again much less fun, not carnivalesque at all, because the psyche of the evangelical saying, well, maybe I'm not 100% sincere. Maybe I have doubts which I'm hiding from myself. Of course you'll have doubts if your um, ethos demands absolute unqualified commitment to a given position. So the evangelical in phase two says, maybe I have doubts, and then begins, thus begins, a really agonizing period of self-criticism and self-destructive ferocity against possible evasions within the self. And that phase two will give way to what we see in the 18th century as a return to forms of hiding which were regarded as positive. That's to say irony. Irony is suddenly back in favour in the 18th century and uh, from the end of the 17th century. Um, But for the evangelical, irony is uh, a sin because it's a form of hypocrisy. The word irony, after all, means uh, mask. It's the mask of the the actor, the iron. So um, we can understand, if we're thinking about contemporary culture and the way in which authenticity is playing a very large part, rather shocking part, in our contemporary culture, we can see that that uh, praise of authenticity against hypocrisy has actually a very long and interesting history. And it's especially uh, with regard to priests, that ecclesiastical figures, that uh, the charge of hypocrisy is made. The problem is that uh, with the priesthood of all believers, uh, as touted by um, Luther and, uh, well, especially by Luther, um, with the priesthood of all believers, then we're all suddenly uh, vulnerable to the subject, to the charge of being hypocrites because we are now priests ourselves. Have I answered yeah. that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it just makes me think of uh, one of your examples uh, who, who comes up again and again and is really I'd say the most uh, dynamic subject of yours is unsurprisingly Shakespeare, who very often is illustrative of these certain moments, but also at the same time as being illustrative of these different phases is sort of the one figure who is able to stand against the tide of history and is able to accommodate a lot of different uh, pressures all at once. Um, and, And irony is a great example. Shakespeare just emerged in this book and he emerged as the opponent or the polar opposite of Milton. Uh, 
you know, Milton, the great champion of the liberal tradition, uh, in my book comes out as a much more complicated, self-conflicted, mixed figure and in many ways a very questionable figure uh, through his various forms of um, absolutism and authoritarianism, his politics, for example, uh, absolutist. Uh, his actual work, working for a military junta who has diminished uh, effectively silenced Parliament. Um, Milton, by my money, is a much more interesting figure than is accounted for by the uh, rather tired, um, jejune, uh, liberal account of Milton as the great and unqualified champion of liberty. No, it's not Milton, uh, as um, uh, a recent scholar uh, in Princeton has it that, you know, writes a book saying, is Milton better than Shakespeare, uh, in, in which he, he answers um, yes. Um, no, I say Shakespeare's better than Milton, <laughs> to put it very, very crudely. These are absurd uh, questions, rhetorical questions. Now, Milton, uh, Shakespeare is the one who understands the logic of the evangelical moment. For a long time in English cultural history, it was regarded that Shakespeare was a secularist, the product of Renaissance humanism. That is true of some of Shakespeare's plays. But if we look at many of the plays, uh, well, plays that I, for example, talk about in this book, and there's been a huge amount of interest in Shakespearean religion over the last 20 years. It's not by any means me. I'm a very, very much a latecomer to this. But if we look at Hamlet, if we look at the measure for measure, if we look at the Tempest, uh, we can see um, profound religious measure, uh, Winter's Tale. We can see uh, profound engagements with sane, civilised engagements with evangelical culture in such a way as to point forward to uh, a future in which we can sanely live flourishing lives um, out from under, from outside uh, of being under the heel of uh, evangelical religion. Shakespeare is the hero of my book, definitely. Yeah, and, and Shakespeare will provide me with my entry into one of your examples because you do a... I can only call it a, a lyrical and profound reading of The Merchant of Venice. And it's your uh, sort of lens through which you discuss and subvert the narrative of the legacy of biblical literalism. So in the in the triumphalist narrative, um, the, the relationship with the Bible, the translation into the vernacular represents a sort of democratization of religion and the, a liberty of personal interpretation. But this, you say, is actually to follow the fundamentalist genealogy, not the liberal one. And in the fundamentalist genealogy, the story is much more absolutist. It's in England, often state controlled, um, requires a lot of specialized uh, knowledge. It's the, refracted through class, etc. And you offer a rereading of The Merchant of Venice that allows you to discuss this more broadly. Um, so if you could talk a little bit about, yeah, the topic 
in its broader contours, but also uh, your specific rereading of Merchant of Venice with respect to its implicit critique of biblical literalism. Thank you. Someone once asked me why I should focus on literature in particular as the evidence uh, of my case about the uh, larger structure of um, Protestant culture and Protestant tradition. Why literature? Well, there are many reasons for that. Literature is always where the the truths are. Uh, Literature is always very sensitive to deep pasts and long-term futures. But it's particularly true in the 16th and 17th century because evangelicals are going to kill literature if they possibly can. How so? Because evangelicals are literalists and as we all know, literature is, is the good literature, literature that deserves the name, is, is the opposite of literalist. Shakespeare knows that evangelicals are his enemies, and so it is in The Merchant of Venice that I read the play as a drama about literalism. Um, I read it as a drama about literalism, which is much literalism, which is much less about Jews versus Christians, uh, although it's about that too, because uh, Jewish biblical reading practice was uh, ridiculously uh, repudiated as merely uh, literalist uh, in a very long tradition of Christian hermeneutics. So it is about Jewish-Christian relations, yes, but much more deeply and urgently, it's about biblical hermeneutics. It's about biblical interpretation, and it's about an evangelical uh, account of literalism versus a sane, charitably driven, rational account of what and how words mean. In my view, The 16th and 17th century violence that uh, completely swamped Europe and including Britain was in good part a violence produced out of the crisis of reading. We're undergoing the same crisis now and the violence we see on our horizon are in good part a violence produced by a new technology which is producing new forms of reading. The way we read is the way we live. Shakespeare knows this. He knows that his own métier, his own discourse, literary discourse, dramatic discourse, he knows that his own culture is threatened by violence, the violence produced through literalism. Shylock, in my view, I don't read this play as anti-Semitic profoundly. Um, I read it as anti-evangelical. Shylock is the evangelical who insists on the meaning of the words, my bond, my bond, the legal state of uh, that call for a pound of flesh. And how um, how is he managed He's managing that escape movement. Remember that Shakespeare is the one who's initiating, foreseeing, participating, 
encouraging phase number three in virtually all the plays we've mentioned. Shakespeare uh, initiates or points to uh, the escape phase, phase number three, with a literalism which beats literalism. Oh, yeah, cut the pound of flesh, but make sure you don't take a single drop of blood. There was nothing in the document about blood. You can't have the blood, you can have the flesh, but you can only have it if you don't take a drop of blood. This wonderful solution, riposte to the crushing, flesh-cutting pressure of literalism, this wonderful riposte says there's no way you can persuade the literalist of how cruel his position is, except by forcing more cruel literalism on the literalist himself. And so it is that Shakespeare imagines the sane and civilized, charity-driven solution to the ghastly, crushing, body-destroying disciplines, violence-producing disciplines of literalism itself. Shakespeare is pointing ahead of his time to phase number three, a certain interpretative, charitable interpretation of scripture, which is going to stop cutting bodies and stop mass violence. Well, I think we should end where you end, which is a disquisition on the history of liberty. And uh, as with everything in this book, you seek to overturn a number of sacred and established narratives. Uh, And in this chapter, you do it by making a distinction between liberty in the singular and liberty plural, liberties. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Surely. Um, I regard early modernity as um, a period of centralization. Everything becomes singularized, power becomes singularized, uh, ideals become singularized. In the face of an all-dominant God, then uh, evangelicals and people living under the evangelical heel devise notions of liberty. For the Lutherans... um, We have the liberty of a Christian man, which is the liberty to accept God's absolutism. Uh, It's a very paradoxical account of uh, liberty. But by the time we come to the middle of the 17th century, when things have moved on, uh, evangelicals, uh, humanist evangelicals, have started reading uh, Roman texts of Roman law. They've, They've absorbed the Roman theory of liberty, which itself was... Uh, shaped, formulated in, um, in un- under the absolutism of uh, uh, imperial rulers. Um, and uh, they shape a notion of libertas against um, tyranny, singular tyranny, singular ab- absolutism, and singular libertas. Um, In my view, uh, this notion of singular liberty uh, is the one that characterizes uh, the the most extreme aspects of the liberal tradition. 
uh, and it is the notion of liberty that characterizes the libertarian right and very often the progressive left in uh, American and uh, Anglo-American culture. Um, liberty singular. What this singularization of liberty, which derives from absolutism and the great period of European absolutism, which was not the Middle Ages, but rather the 16th and 17th centuries, that's the age of absolutism. Um, it's the age of ab absolutism that produces the singular notion of liberty and so correlatively produces a notion of liberty that is very destructive. As soon as anyone uh, says, oh, my liberty is being infringed by this, then everyone else is supposed to back off and recognize the power of this liberty, singular liberty. What is occluded in that ideological world, which characterizes both right and left, uh, what is occluded is the plural notion of liberties, uh, which, which is a medieval notion uh, and which is also characteristic of uh, proponents of the common law in 17th century Britain. It's our liberties. And once you reinvoke this medieval notion and revise this medieval notion of liberties, then all of a sudden you have uh, a debatable, uh, lower temperature account of uh, how we might conduct our civic life, not always appealing to singular liberty in such a way that every argument is over before it's begun, but by appealing to one liberty after another, by appealing to a notion that uh, evokes the past in order to produce the future, um, as distinct from the ahistorical world of uh, singular liberty. I think the liberal tradition now which is looking ever more vulnerable, and I am a liberal, I hasten to say, uh, the liberal tradition now would be well advised to go back over its own history and see that uh, the great figures of the liberal tradition are figures that promote plural liberties um, rather than, as Milton almost always does, singular liberty. Well, the book is... Permanent Revolution, the Reformation, and the Illiberal Roots of Liberalism. It's an absolute must. Get yourself a copy. James Simpson, thank you for being with us. It's really been a delight, John. You're such a good reader. Uh, the main thing that an author wants from a book is not praise for the book. The main thing any author wants is to be understood. You have understood my book with perfection, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much.